0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect official policies or position of the Church of England Pensions Board, any other organisation, employer, or their employees. And now, on with the show. Good day and welcome back for another episode. This week, we are travelling to Africa for the first time while we continue talking responsibly. And welcome to Talking Responsibly, the rock and roller's guide to responsible investment. Thank you for joining us again. As usual, I am accompanied by my fantastic co-host, Adam Matthews. Uh, Adam, Welcome sir how are you today
1: I'm doing very well david very well and how are you doing you look a bit under the weather I'm baby. I'm a bit it's peaky so, mate so yeah
0: I'm 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 I've got a bit of a cold not covid Definitely a cold, um, but uh, that's so few colds over the last eighteen months. I don't know what to do with myself. I feel like, I feel been very, brave to do I, I very brave. I am brave. I think what I need is uh, I, I need like a badge saying uh, what a brave little boy I am <laughs> uh, as a soldier. Because everyone knows how how terrible man flu is. People talk about COVID, but man flu, oh, terrible. Definitely. Anyway. Definitely. Well we've got we've got a packed uh, a packed schedule uh today uh, and we have two count them two fantastic guests so I'm going to Uh, Give you the bios for both of them and then uh, join them in. So first we have uh, Nazmira uh, Mula. Now Nazmira is head of the uh, South African Investments at 91. Uh, She works across the South Africa and African Investments teams to ensure that we continue to have uh, a uh, that they continue to have a competitive investment performance. Prior to this, uh, she was co-head at uh, South Africa and Africa uh, the Fixed Income Team. Uh, Nasmira has also covered the macro economy in South Africa and other emerging markets since 2000, including stints at Macquarie and Merrill Lynch. Uh, Harima includes Emerging Africa Infrastructure Fund, which provides debt financing for projects across Africa, as well as working across the broader sustainability initiatives at 91, including the implementation of the company's commitment to net zero. Now, we also have Victoria Barron. Uh, Victoria um, joined the uh, BT (coughs) pension scheme Uh, as Head of Sustainable Investments in June 2020. Uh, And uh, she leads the scheme's stewardship and sustainable investment strategy. Uh, Prior to joining that, she was at Newton Investment Management as a responsible investment analyst and has worked for Hermes EOS, uh, the FTSE group, and CCLA Investment Management. Goodness me. Uh, she currently chairs the ASCOR project. <laughs> oh dear, which we will get onto to later and explain what the uh, acronym to that actually means. And has previously sat on a number of uh, investor-related advisory bodies, including the Investment Association Climate Change Working Group, the 30% Club uh, Investor Group, and the Science-Based Targets Financial Institution Expert Advisory Group, or SBTI. So we finally we finally got an explanation there. Uh she's got an environmental technology MSc from Imperial and has also studied at Manchester University, great uni, uh and Oxford Said Business School. So welcome Nazmira and Victoria. Thank and you
2: that's... David. Oh,
0: hello. And <laughs> one other thing I forgot about Victoria is uh on uh whatsapp groups she's really really fantastic at doodling over people's photos to change them into <laughs> something else absolute superstar um David, the, that's
3: top secret you shouldn't be you,
0: i don't know i i just think i i can never get around the we we may share one day the uh adam matthews as billy eilish or, or eilish <laughs> i never get that right and my niece has always <laughs> shouted me for being uncool um but it's a fantastic picture one
3: day Yes, maybe, a, may, a signed copy.
0: Yeah, yes. maybe once we get to uh, to 1000 subscribers, we'll share that photo. So tell your friends to get subscribing. Uh, so, Adam, over to you. Yeah, well,
1: I'm actually delighted to have Nazmira and Victoria join us. And um, I think the linkages with the work that we're doing together will sort of become apparent as we sort of go through the discussion. But What particularly stimulated um, the desire to have an episode of of the podcast on on this issue really was initially a posting from um, the chief executive of of 91, which was really quite challenging. And I I posted, I sort of reposted it on LinkedIn because I just thought it was brilliantly written. And it just sort of said, look, what what are we trying to do in terms of supporting the transition in, in emerging economies like South Africa? How are we actually, really getting change on the ground to support governments. They've got challenging um, environments in terms of their their existing energy infrastructure. What what are responsible investors doing to sort of support that at a really practical level? And how are we going to get the resources into the countries that really need them to to aid that transition in in as fast and as fair way as possible? And I just thought it was a brilliantly articulated um, position that prompted a discussion with, with Nazmira and we really started just sort of knocking around some thoughts and, and, and quite frankly, I've just been in a bit of an exercise of learning from Nazmira and some of the thinking in, in 91, in terms of what the practical realities are on, on, on the ground. And we've talked previously on the podcast about South Africa. Um, we've talked in, with Marco Tofani and sort of the realities of mining in that country um and how we can sort of transition the mining sector which obviously produces some of the um well produces thermal coal that's used within the energy infrastructure within south africa he's acutely conscious as a ceo operating in that country about the need to transition his assets in a a just way and then how does that link to the national transition plan of south africa and I've sort of a genuine concern around the sort of the the actions that some companies are starting to take with good in, with with the right intention, but very much as a result of the pressure coming from shareholders to see them addressing their the emissions profile. And, and, and as a result of that, some of them are starting to sell off assets and it sort of posed a question of of are we seeing unintended consequences? And is there a better path here where actually we could acknowledge potentially that these assets that are carbon intensive at the moment that are producing um, coal that's going into an infrastructure that at present is dependent on coal. um, But actually, is there a way of sort of bringing together the different parts of, of the system in finance here to be a bit more constructive and practical? And that's really stimulated a conversation with Nazmira, and, and I was keen to have you on the podcast, really, to sort of hear your thoughts and perhaps share that with the responsible investment community that I know listens to this podcast, um, and then have a discussion around the role of of how we look at sovereign bonds, um, and that links, I think, to the work that Victoria is doing as chair of the Ascor project that she um, will be able to explain in due course. So, Nazmira, really, just sort of over to you, really. How, how do you sort of see the landscape at the moment?
2: Thanks, Adam. Um, I was honored to be invited onto the call. Um, I didn't expect David to spend half of it picking on Victoria, but um, I'm very honored to be here today. So, I think the conversation we've been having started from a very practical bent in terms of dealing with the electricity utility in South Africa. So, Eskom, which is South Africa's electricity producer owned by the government, has probably the most carbon intensive electricity in the world. of the grid is fired by coal-fired power stations. The only good news is that these are not new plants. They're either midlife or older plants. So you can have some legitimate conversation at this stage about retiring these. And that's what the government has finally, after several years, gotten around to doing. So the good news is that the cabinet this week passed the updated NDC, which sees South Africa aligned somewhere between a one and a half and two degree world. It's not quite a one and a half, but it's somewhere in between, which, you know, from, from so a, a uh, emerging, Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I think it's a great step. Now we need to like translate it into things actually happening. But one of the things we realized in this is that when you're thinking about um, decarbonizing in middle-income countries, it's a very different conversation to building clean infrastructure in low-income countries. And a lot of the debates around um, financing emerging market transitions seems to be centered around how do you build that new infrastructure that's green and clean, and that's really important. But a lot of the, I mean, if I look at some of the initiatives going on at the moment, um, th- that's their focus. Private markets, project finance, unblocking those. And nobody's really thinking about how do you use public markets to, um, to build new infrastructure, but also decarbonize existing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And, and in that, what you need to think about is how are pension funds, how are you guys going to, measure this, because if the only measurement you're looking at is um, carbon intensity, it's very difficult to think in terms of transition if your portfolio metric is, I I, I want a portfolio that's not very high in carbon emissions at this point in time, um, because that doesn't lend you to supporting Eskom's transition, that leads you to US tech. So yeah. I've covered quite a few things there, but I, I think that gives you an overarching view of where um, what, what I'm trying to grapple with at this point.
1: Yeah, so, so I mean, I think that's the practical challenge I, I feel very much to the peers that we we're working with, which are sort of setting commitments as pension funds to be net zero, but actually is that are those commitments ones that can drive the transition rather than simply wash assets out. And then I suppose, how does that link to the way that we also look at our sovereign debts and, and connect to the sort of interventions we're sort of get, getting from companies in which we're shareholders also, and, and their relationship with that path of a transition of a country like South Africa. And, and I think sort of feel that there needs to be a greater focus amongst us on, on how we can sort of practically do this. Um, and I think really, there are some of the conversations that one hopes will happen um around cop, but sort of post it really to sort of perhaps develop a different approach here.
0: yeah, it's it's a really good point. Uh, I think we've we've discussed on the uh, on the on the pod before about you know the the possibility of as having taken the wrong path uh, to some extent uh, collectively as investors, and this obsession with Um, portfolio decarbonization rather than overall global economy decarbonization and I think it's important for uh, you know any investors listening um, any trustees listening that you know you don't live in your portfolio and whilst you might want to demonize you know coal power or coal mining or uh, fossil fuels um, that you know we're at the reasonably early stages i mean early to mid stages i guess when it comes to coal but we're still in the early game of an energy transition a transition takes time it doesn't you know you can't just say you know i I want a clean portfolio therefore i'm going to sell these stocks and then you know bugger it someone else can can deal with the consequences nothing changes in the world as you um you do that and and of course the anglo selling of the uh, Thangela, uh resources uh, mine, or the the kind of split off that they did, um, you know that that mine no longer shows up on the uh, carbon intensity numbers of anyone that's holding Anglo's, but the mine still exists. And to be honest, I, I would rather have the management of a large, deep-pocketed, and uh, you know future direction-focused organization like anglos than it possibly falling into the wrong hands people who may and i believe are planning to extend the life of the mine extend the um the amount of coal that that mine's going to uh, produce um going into the future it just seems silly to me and going back to what uh we were discussing with john Houchin on the last call you know it's up to asset owners to make sure that they have sight and that someone somewhere has sight of every one of these assets um, and that we know what the transition plans for all of them are.
3: Yeah, uh, I think. Sorry, uh, just to sort of interject. I think the point that you made, David, there about just washing your portfolios of all the bad stuff is an easy, quick win. Tick. We've done that uh, in the net zero box or in the in Absolutely. the climate change box. Because the alternative then is really questioning your portfolio and going right. Okay. This- this is a heavy emitter, but they've got a net zero plan, or this is a heavy emitter, but if they fundamentally change their strategy, then actually this could really push for, for global transition. So, you know, it's it's the priority of your own portfolio or actually committing to helping that global transition. And I think this is the, the rub where investors will, you know, be feeling, and I'm sure there will be lots of very nice announcements ahead of COP. Um, you know, lots of people are setting net zero targets. Um, you know, the first port of call will be their portfolio, but as you just said, we don't just live in our portfolio. It is, a, it is, this is a global issue. But also, in as regards to what you were talking about, and I'd really just love to learn a little bit more. I don't think investors actually know much about these markets. Sorry, we're sort of sat here in maybe our our protected bubble wrapped towers. I mean, and I certainly don't. And I've worked, you know, with the mining sectors for a few years. I don't think we actually know about this when it comes to the topic of climate change.
2: Victoria, it's a a complex subject. So it's not, you know, I think we're all learning at this point in time. But I mean, if we go back to to Tungela, they, on their current um, life of mine, they should run to zero by 2031. Mm. They have enough reserves to extend to 2040. So, Anglo has unbundled them, separately listed. They have other financing options available to them, including offtake agreements with various parties in Asia Hmm. to fund this expansion. So even though the banks are not going to fund it for them, there are other parties there. And I think that that's one of the realizations that we we, we sort of need to get to. There are other sources of capital that may not be as responsible as um, the pools that the three of you represent. and, and and therefore in, engaging with these companies and owning them through their transition plans is probably, in, in my opinion, the most responsible thing we can do.
1: So that I think that phrase you just used, owning them through their transition plans, I think that's that's the key thing that we're not necessarily. I think we're supporting them, but being willing to own difficult assets through their transition plans, as you've just put it, I think that's actually a really powerful challenge to mm. rethink the basis upon which we do that and how you can be assured that they're able that the transition plan is credible but i think it's also the linkage because i think the only way you could legitimately do that is that you've got the certainty that that asset being run to that original timeline or even reduced is clearly demarked because it's can to into escom which has a transition plan as well that we have confidence in that potentially could be sped up, that there's an appropriate relationship with that transition plan that is ensuring that the workforces and the communities that are dependent on those mines are transitioned as well um, and not simply left stranded. And at the same time, that Escon's transition plan is very much underpinned and in line with the ambition of the, the, the nationally determined contribution South Africa's just set out and it's realistic. I'm also conscious that companies like anglo they're operating in a number of other sort of production of mine sites which are producing other metals and minerals etc that that are also going to need to get their scope one and two emissions down and therefore need Eskom to transition so there's an interconnectedness across the sort of economy of all the other companies that are setting targets and then i suppose it's also how do you look at the sovereign bond of a country like south africa or the transition finance that they need to unlock I think, the, the transition paths um, for their NDCs um, to be sort of made a reality. I think these are the sort of the puzzle pieces that are, are there, but I don't feel there's an interconnectedness. I, I don't know, Nazbir, how you sort of see that landscape and how we can get from where we are to where we potentially need to be.
0: I'm just going to jump in there, Adam. Um, because I, I want ESCOM and NDCs. I know what NDCs are, but I've no idea what I, ESCOM is. I said
1: NDCs, National Determined Contributions.
0: Right. I, I said it correctly. He did. ESCOM, I've heard that mentioned a couple of times, and I don't know what that means. I'm going to leave it as we go Great. Nazmira, over to you.
2: ESCOM is the electricity utility in South Africa. And to be quite honest, I... I, I
0: that's that's fine. I if it's just Google if, this. if so, it's just give a given name, word. no, no,
2: no, no you, you, you gave me the challenge. Here's the challenge. <laughs> Let me try and pronounce it now. "Electricitates for commissie.
0: Okay, really? so that's an a, an Afrikaans word then. I think we'll we'll definitely <laughs> stick with Eskom.
2: <laughs> you can go next, otherwise.
0: Good. So that's Mira. Over to you.
2: Um. Adam, I agree that's where we need to land. It's just really complex. And and in some ways, because South Africa's electricity grid has been in stasis for the last 10 years, it's almost easier to have the discussion in South Africa than it is to have it in Indonesia um, or the Philippines at this point in time, where you've had lots of um, private... Um, offtake agreements being signed with developers who've built coal-fired power stations and are now going to be connecting to the grid over the next couple of years. You know, South Africa, due to its own special reasons, let's not go do down the Jacob Zuma hole, um, has not, does not have that issue. And so you can link them together as you've done. And, and I think the cabinet is starting to link that together. So South Africa's 65% of the emissions in the country can be dealt with between Eskom and Sasol. And Sasol yesterday announced its transition plan. We're in the process of evaluating that to take a look and see if it's viable. Um, as I've discussed with you previously, we are co-leads on the Climate Action 100 um, for Sasol, so it's something that we, we are we are definitely taking a look at. But Th- that's simpler. And, and then you can get to sovereign financing, and we can talk about the sovereign issuing bonds on the back of an overall plan. And Victoria can help explain how we're going to measure that better shortly. Um, mm-hmm. But when we look at other countries we look at right now, and mm-hmm. um, Turkey or in India or in Indonesia, there, there are many more moving pieces. Mm-hmm. There are many more role players. And and, and that's why it, it is quite difficult to hang it together uh, the way you've just done.
1: But yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I just sort of wonder if we need to be thinking a lot more rather than sort of top down globalised initiatives, it's going to be much more nationally derived solutions where we as sort of i'm using a very collective royal we here but sort of those that are sort of really committed to working in the transition and wanting to support the transition and recognizing there's some difficult aspects of the transition and some uncomfortable ownership that's going to need to continue against a lot of pressure to just simply divest that you're going to potentially going to need to really work at a national level if you're going to make this a reality and play the part that you can play rather than sort of um, yeah expecting this to sort of come from sort of globalised structures. And I, I just sort of that, that's just a thought that's knocking mm-hmm. around. And I, I do feel that there's a lot of positivity around what can happen in and what you're doing and, and others are doing in, in South Africa.
3: I do. I do also think that um, I was brushing my teeth the other day and often these thoughts come to me as I'm brushing my teeth um I just thought, I don't think institutions realize how much we need to increase our teams looking at these sorts of complex issues. Um, and, and maybe this is just you know me thinking that we, we need more people in the room to have these discussions, but I don't think a lot of our institutions and our organizations are have the capability at the moment to think about you know these really complicated geographic, issues that form part of this you know global global topic and i just think that all all organizations always need to threefold their teams to to be able to do this sort of analysis and to be able to really have these these conversations about this very complicated topic i don't know maybe this is just me trying to throw money at a problem but um yeah, yeah Victoria, i just think we've we, really got bottom
0: of it we've had we've had this discussion before on the pod and it's it's know. The, you know it's it's this the more that uh, asset owners you know clearly need to do that that becomes naturally uh, inflationary and it is difficult because you know where where does the money for doing that come from um mm-hmm. because you know if if my particular scheme that I work for is currently open uh, so if we have higher costs we need to charge higher um contributions from our employers uh, I believe yours is a closed scheme. Is that is that correct? Nice. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. know, you know, a closed scheme then has to work out how to boost its returns in order to pay for this extra overhead. Um, so we've got this kind of this difficult situation where the the, the trustees and the officers actually want to do something, um, but it all needs to get paid for. Um, and you know, how does that happen, especially when you have guaranteed incomes from these funds? Um,
1: but but isn't this where we're going to need to just okay that i I agree there's there's a sort of internal scaling needed at the end of the sort of asset owner spectrum um but at the same time i just wonder if we need to be more imaginative to collaborate with with groupings Mm -hmm. and then looking to Mm -hmm. end fund managers that do have that experience and obviously here we have an example of one um where they're, they're immersed within the realities of Of the country, but I think it's almost like a consciousness thing that we need to think okay, I'm willing to work with a group that's going to be working within a country um, to sort of really support that transition plan. And I just wonder if there's some thinking to be done at at that end of the spectrum and and gaining comfort and and working through some of this together. I, yeah, I think it'll be difficult if we all sort of unquestionably going to have to scale individually, etc. But I, yeah, well, there's, I there's, there's also,
0: I mean, not not calling anyone out, but you know, I'm sure that there are funds that listen to this that this, yeah. aren't currently involved in anything, um, and that you know that this is going to, is going to have to be a joint effort, and it can't just be Adam Matthews and Faith Ward and you know the 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 you know the names that seem to do everything. Um, that everyone's going to have to put a bit of effort in uh, as a as a asset owner community. Um, and, you know, we're not necessarily seeing that from everyone uh, in every but nation.
3: I think it goes back to sort of a point that we've all sort of made earlier, which is thinking, you know, it isn't just about just, you know, washing your portfolio, but having those complicated conversations with your fund managers, with very experienced people like this Mirror. Um, who know the realities on the ground and 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 doing what she said which is you know staying with the companies that are working through their transition and having the um i guess the the commitment to doing that that requires a little bit of you know not a little bit quite a lot of backbone and reasoning and internal discussion Um, but you know as a trustee as an asset owner um, you need to be open to having those conversations and then you know turning and looking do you know is there escom in the portfolio you know, Is there subtle? How do we deal with that? And, and how can our farm managers help us with that?
2: Absolutely. I think the more we can leverage off initiatives that um, provide the assessments. So for example, right now it's really difficult to get easy information on the quality of NDCs that we're seeing from countries. So the more that information is easily available, the more we get information on individual company transition plans and and, you know i think it's going to take a few years but i mean if you adam the work you you're doing with tpi is is exactly to that latter point is as that as as that becomes more readily available i think it becomes easier to 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 do this much more complex thing um, without you know massive teams so that's what one thing i mean i think the other thing though is Emerging market specialists, companies that—I'm not trying to sell my business okay. here—but <laughs> always dangerous when you start getting down this road. But, but people who have, um, you know, a, a a number of individuals operating in countries and see it from a number of different angles. Oh. You know, so we have equity funds, we have debt funds, we have credit funds. Um, In Africa, we have infrastructure, private infrastructure funds funded by various European Union governments. You you get to know the spaces a a lot more deeply. So if you're going to talk to a house with a lot of emerging market experience about Indonesia versus someone who has a much shorter tenor, you're going to get a different assessment. Mm
1: -hmm. What what role do you see, though, perhaps for the international development banks or or the the World Bank and and the the regional development banks in terms of equally playing a role there to enable um, investors to come in? Because I I just, there's a sort of open question. I know others have sort of said about whether we need to repurpose these entities much more proactively to be opening up um, the the, the space and acting almost as an outrider. But I, I don't know to what extent you think that, that's a role that needs to be reshaped pretty rapidly.
2: I think they, they can play a really important role um, in, in, in several different ways. One is um, boosting, continuing to boost the pipeline. And, and I think that they, they should look to include more private sector participation in projects that they develop um, much more than they do currently. Um, so I think the work they do in terms of regulatory environments in emerging markets, project preparation, all are really important, and we need to scale that up, do a lot more of that, so, so that's one angle. Um, the other angle is that there's a lot of discussion from um, asset managers around the multilaterals providing first loss for funds. And I, I, am, I can see it initially as a demonstration effect to get people into these areas that um, wouldn't otherwise go without the first loss, but, but, it, but it's not a long-term solution. It's, it's, it's not at all a long-term solution. You know, the, 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 the balance sheets of the MDVs are not big enough to give everybody first loss. So it, 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 it needs to be a case of maybe there's an initial fund for demonstration benefits, but thereafter, these funds need to be able to stand on their own. And actually, the returns that you see are quite solid. The risk-adjusted returns make sense. It's just that the perceived risk for many of these markets is much higher than the realized risk and it's bridging that gap that i think maybe the mdbs can play some role
0: yeah there's, there's a real lack of understanding i think about you know what what africa looks like i was discussing this on a call i blame uh i blame comic relief actually um and i blame um live aids do they know it's christmas which comes around every year uh on the on the uh on the christmas playlists and um portrays africans as you know uh starving children that that uh need looking after and need charity and you know a lot of what we see of africa uh is um you know people living in very rural communities with not much in the terms of uh in terms of material goods and things like that uh poverty and so and then what we're not looking at is, you know, vibrant communities like uh, Accra and, uh, you know, Cape Town and things like that. You know, there's there's an awful lot of very um, uh, investable parts of Africa. There's a lot of opportunity in Africa. There's massive amounts of population growth in Africa. So somewhere that's going to see a lot of economic growth uh, over the coming, you know, 20, 30 years is uh, is Africa um and that will require lots and lots of um lots and lots of infrastructure investments there's lots of returns to be made there but people are scared um one group that don't appear to be scared are the the Chinese government who um are uh, coming in with massive infrastructure projects massive amounts of funding and whilst uh, we Europeans sit on the sidelines the, uh, the 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 Chinese are, are making the investments and taking the future investment returns that we could maybe be uh, be part of, um, and I think it's it's really short sighted. And you know, given European involvement in many countries uh, over uh, a, a, an extended period of time, let's say, um, you know, we should know them better than anyone else and be able to uh, invest as partners. Uh, you know, in in a different way to as we did as you know, colonial powers years ago. Yes.
1: That's anyway, you, you've yeah. Uh, anyway,
0: yeah. Uh, so, edu- more education and for education tools, we we're, we'll put some uh, tools and papers and stuff from ninety one in the show notes. And you know, any listeners that want to learn about investing in Africa, um, we'll we'll put the links. And I'm sure they'll uh, link up with uh, Nasmira online. We're going to leave the programme for just a few moments for Rory Sullivan with Book of the Week. We will be back with Nasmira and Victoria in just
4: a moment. Welcome to Book of the Week with Rory Sullivan. Hi. This week's book review is *The Key Man* by Simon Clark and Will Louch, or Will loush Who knows? Anyway, the book is the story of Arif Nakhvi, the founder of private equity firm Abrage, a firm that was hailed as being one of the the great responsible investment firms and providers of impact investment. Um, Nakhvi, I presume that's how we one pronounce his name. Positioned himself as as a As a visionary as an individual who would enable people to to both make impact investments, make money and do good. It was a seductive narrative. Everybody by everybody, I mean the great and the good who know very little about this field was seduced positions on UN organizations, um, some sort of position with Interpol, um, endorsed by um, many of the responsible investment community, um, including a number who get named in the book. Um, It seemed like a man who was offering everything we wanted, impact and money in one. It came crashing down, unsurprisingly. Um, In 2019, he was arrested um, for fraud and racketeering, um, I believe he is still awaiting trial, so I probably can't say too much more about that. But, but what does it tell us? It, it tells us five things. So, t- so this, week, this week's review is really five lessons. One, beware of fairy tales. They're fairy tales for a reason. Two, don't be seduced by the great and the good, and don't be seduced by the endorsement of the great and good. As we've seen in other high-profile failures recently, most obviously Tyrannos, um, having big names, famous people on your board or on your advisory committee is no guarantee that the underlying business or the underlying activity has any merit. Third, um, if something sounds too good to be true, probably is. Fourth, um, and this is this is a lesson to all of those in the responsible investment community, just because something is ethical or branded ethical or green, um, that doesn't make it a good investment. Buyer beware, remember investment discipline. Um, there's a reason why most people haven't made money out of ethics. Um, and the answer is because it's very difficult. So when somebody promises it, treat a little bit like, um, you know, nuclear, nuclear fission. No, nuclear fusion. No, nuclear whatever it is. You know, the one that doesn't work. Be very skeptical. Fifthly, lastly, and perhaps most importantly for 2021, beware of private equity barons, venture capital barons and 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 leaders selling ESG. Beware of those people selling ethics. Beware of those people selling anything. Remember, buyer beware. Individuals who've made their money in fields other than then responsibility or ethics, they're probably not selling you anything that's any good for you. Thank you.
0: I'm going to ask uh, Victoria, because we've been, we've been chatting away, and I dropped a acronym earlier in the program. And that acronym was ASCOR, A-S-C-O-R. Uh, so, Victoria, I'm wondering if you would be so kind as uh, explaining uh, what ASCOR means uh, and what it does.
3: Absolutely. Another one for the ESG alphabet soup, so Environmental Social Governance alphabet soup, before you and me. Um, so, ASCOR stands for Assessing Sovereign Climate-Related Opportunities and Risks. Um, just have to make sure that I explain that properly. Um, so, what's this whole thing about? Um Essentially, I think it, it, the whole project came about um, a few months ago. There've been discussions in between myself and Adam, Adam and I an know PRI within uh, Principles of Responsible Investment, um, the UN Asset Owner Alliance, or also known as AOA, um, the IIGCC, also known as the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change. Essentially, all of the groups that are trying to figure out what we can do on climate change, looking at all the different asset classes and going, right, okay, we're doing stuff on equities, fantastic, you know, corporate debt, it, it's really underway. But hold on a second, what about sovereign debt? Mm. Sovereign debt, it plays a really big and important role in a lot of institutional investors' portfolios. Um, but how on earth do we start looking at that from a climate change perspective? Um, there's a lot of really great work that's happening in terms of figuring out the accounting of a country's emissions and how then investors can absorb that information into you know their own portfolio's footprint but what about some of the stuff that we've just been discussing that as Mary was was pointing out what about um the policies that are in place today and the ones that are coming in the future, what about the climate governance? What about you know the commitment that we've seen either on paper we're seeing, you know, in terms of money hitting the road or hitting projects um, to show that a country really is, is trying to tackle climate change? And the thing is, is that the reason why the project was created was to try and respond to this big question of how do we think about this as investors? Um, so we decided we to bring those networks that I mentioned before. Um, as well as a Series, which is the, uh, I guess, the US counterpart of um, IRGCC, um, to bring all of these networks together, um, to bring some of the, you know, the, the most forward-thinking minds together, right, let's create an independent academic framework to investors so they can integrate it into their investment process, into their decision-making. Um, and so they have a sense of what's happening in the portfolio. And I think really importantly, that they maybe might be able to use this as a tool to engage with issuers of sovereign debt, which is a route and a channel that you know isn't really being being explored uh, at the moment.
1: I, I, um, I think it goes to Nazmiya's point: we need tools that are commonly used to understand the transition as as investors and um, as core. I think it's a it's, it's, it's hilarious uh, sort of set of initials because every time I think of it, I think of it like some sort of I don't know, Thor-like character, but um, but I think this project has a really important role to play at this particular moment to sort of enable us to get into the nitty-gritty practical reality of national transitions and nationally determined contributions and whether the path the country is setting out to be able to take a view on it. To enable us to then effectively engage with the country upon an assessment of that, that plan. Um, but it, it needs to be practical. So I think there's some really fascinating work for us to do in, in how the sort of framework and there's seven fund managers that have joined the advisory committee. I know 91 is one of those. And uh, you had that announcement this week, Victoria, of, of those other managers that are joining us to help shape this tool with, with the London School of Economics, going from research institute team. team. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm excited by the potential and the importance of this. But I'm just hoping it's grounded in that practical reality of, of the conversation we've just had with one particular country focus, mm. that it enables us to sort of play this role that I think we can play um, and and give us the insight that we need to, to be able to do that practically.
3: Yeah, I should also, I'd just like to point out actually that um, we're being supported by Crono Sustainability um, on the project that also Transition Pathway Initiative is also a member of that project. Um, And Sura Asset Management, which is Latin America's largest pension fund provider, um, is also part of that that steering committee. And I mentioned them in particular because we really wanted to make sure the project has um, global north and south representation. Um, So it's not just a group of, you know, nice, well-meaning white people in Europe or North America trying to come up with some solution that doesn't integrate and acknowledge other geographies who also have investments and also have their own realities that we just might not be aware of.
2: And I mean, I think the reason why we were very keen to be part of it was, if we look at our asset division, we've got about 150 billion pounds globally of which 60% is in emerging markets. So 22, 23% in South Africa, and the rest is in emerging markets across the world. And we're trying to have these conversations with governments at this point in time. Mm. And with companies, you have some leverage as an investor. If you're largest investors, with a company, you have some leverage, you can have a conversation. With with countries, it's much more difficult. Mm. So having um, assessment tools, which um, are viewed as being somewhat objective, That allows you to assess it and integrate into your investment process, but then to also be able to point to and say, um, look, these are some of the um, things we're seeing other countries do. These are some Mm -hmm. of the things you could do quite easily, is what we, uh, one of the things we hope to get out of this as well.
3: Yeah. And, and that's what we're hoping the framework will do. We're, you know, it's going to be looking at a whole load of different factors, you know, to so the strength of the national term and contribution, the data availability, um, the adaptation and mitigation uh, potential of a country, their resilience, um, and just trying to, to provide an answer for investors to, to have this discussion. Because the tools that are out there at the moment, and this might get me into trouble, but I'm sorry, but credit ratings just don't cut it right now. They're too short term. You cannot rely on them to give you that forward-looking perspective that long-term investors have to have. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think one question I wanted to ask everyone is um, why do you think there hasn't been much discussion about sovereign debt at the moment? I have some of my own opinions, but why, why is it that it's sort of just been left to the side on the topic of, of climate change? I, I've
0: got I've got a really... Straightforward one for this. I think it's too hard. People don't really know what it means. What 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 does it mean? The the climate of sovereign debt. is that the 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 climate impact of government spending? Is it the climate impact of all uh, activity that goes on within that country? Does that include the financing that that country provides, etc, etc, et cetera, et cetera? And then you get onto the issues of You know, potentially double counting, triple counting, quadruple counting, especially on a scope three basis where things are, you know, double counted or triple counted anyway, you then put your sovereigns on so, um, you know, you can double double count uh, and so on and so forth. So people just say, we'll leave that to later, we'll do the easy stuff first. Easy, I'm thinking companies are slightly easier. And I think people have just been putting it off. And now something's come on and said, "Yeah, we're going to tackle this. Does it, any I, was, I was just going to sort of verbally backfiring. relax in yeah. you
3: um, to, to ask maybe if you explain what scope three means.
0: Oh, um, yes. So um, we have discussed this before, but there's, there's three different uh, scopes of carbon uh, measurement Uh, Scopes one, scope two, and scope three. So on a very basic sense, I think scope one is the carbon that you emit in the course of your business. Scope two is the upstream uh, carbon, so the the stuff that's emitted um, in helping the products of your business before they get to you. So that's the powering your business and the raw materials uh, extraction. And Scope 3 is what we call a downstream carbon. So that is the carbon impact of um, of the activities of your business. So if you're a, a, an oil company or a coal miner, um, your carbon emissions can be quite low on a Scope 1-2 basis because that's your production. But the usage of your product comes under Scope 3, and that's quite big. Now, as a, a when I talk about double counting, if you're a... a if you're a petrol manufacturer and you're a car manufacturer, you know who do you apply those scope three emissions to? Um, if you have a, a portfolio of two companies, one makes petrol and one makes cars, um, your scope three is the petrol that's produced goes to the petrol company, but the petrol that's burned also goes to the car company. So you've got a the potential double counting there, and that's where the accounting for carbon gets difficult. And back, yeah, but I, th- I, I mean, regular. I think
1: we're we're working through those things, and it's brilliant. We are. To have we're getting someone, better. I thi- someone rever- a, 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 a somebody coming on the podcast and reverse klaxon in you. That's fantastic. Yes. So, um, but I, I mean, I think that I mean the methodologies you have in the transition pathway initiative is able to look at the auto sector, looking at fleet efficiency, um, is able to look at emissions of a oil and gas company and then work through their value chain I think that's the next stage is working through the value chain of a company like a shell and identifying their targets related to aviation um, shipping etc and then being able to almost have an accountability through those value chains I think we'll have to evolve our tools to be able to do that I think going back to sovereigns question i I mean part of the impetus is quite clearly when you're making commitments as a fund to be net zero you've got to look at all your assets so we have to do this so therefore there's a a need to have a common tool and the fear that um, we had as a fund was that there's going to be various things emerging and there wasn't going to be a sort of common lens in which to look at the transition from the perspective of sovereign um, debt and and the need to have that and so we we're very keen to see this initiative um, fill that gap and it's brilliant the, the work you've been able to do to bring everybody together to sort of coalesce around a project that will, will produce a methodology and a tool but it really does need to be um, very practical because I think it's got to enable not only an understanding but then an ability to really sort of have action that follows it. And I think that's where um, there, there's some work to be done in, in through the project and the consultations that'll be had. Um, I'm also interested in how you sort of look at national legislative frameworks and and sort of assessing the the, the national transition plans, but also nationally owned companies if a country has nationally owned companies well what are the disclosure standards we're expecting in public markets and are they being applied within those um, national um, entities and I think there's opportunity to change the parameters of the debate going back to Nazmira's point rather than investors sending a letter signed by multiple trillions of investors to a country um, saying this is our view on something which seems to be one of the main actions that have that we do which is important because you express an opinion but at the same time having a debate where you're actually there as holders or potential holders of debt or providers of transition finance puts you in a very different position and having a tool that enables a very constructive dialogue I think reshapes that debate but I I think it gives us a chance to come in a a different dynamic here so that's why we are very supportive and excited. And
2: I think one of the things that if you can take that work and start to link it to instruments that um, countries can see the benefits of, that's when it becomes very practical to me. So um, Victoria and I have had a previous conversation of the difference between um, transition bonds and transition linked bonds, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) Transition bonds are um, bonds where there's a specific purpose for the capital being raised, the use of funds, like a ring-fenced use of funds, you're raising the money and you're gonna spend it on specific capital expenditure to um, reduce your emissions. Um, Transition-linked bonds doesn't have that ring-fencing, but there's specific targets that need to be met. And there's an impact on interest rates, on the cost of the debt um, for those targets being met or not being met. So there's a penalty and a carrot Mm -hmm. involved in it the consequences, because one of the big criticisms of green bonds is that there's a promise and there's no ability to rectify if the promise isn't met. And then the nice thing about transition-linked bonds or sustainability-linked bonds, which can have a broader set of measures attached, is that the consequences are built into the documentation. The interest rate shifts based on achievement. And if you can take the work um, Ask school is going to do and then link that into actual instruments i think that could be really powerful
1: yeah and well, there's I'm, the work I'm, agenda victoria That's
3: it. yeah casual just 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 one small thing no i think <laughs> you know we're going to see this conversation develop in sophistication quite a lot um we've all just got to be really careful that we don't fall through the greenwash bullshit am i allowed to say that on No, this, on
0: this you've podcast? said it now and we're not we will we're not going to bleep And he didn't
2: clax on you, so you say. safe. I know. So. Oh dear. Just don't drop <laughs> the F
0: bomb, Victoria. We know what you
2: so, like. Okay. Sorry,
3: this is a child
1: Otherwise, program we'll get the day. Ofcom uh, word guidance.
2: <laughs> hey, if are any children still listening, they probably
1: would. <laughs> <laughs> How double dare you? My children are avid listeners. I think a, t- a 10, 12 year old, I think they love this kind of stuff. So, so,
0: anyway, Victoria, you were talking about bullshit.
3: Sorry, I've never. <laughs> I'm now turned a deep crimson, so I'm terribly sorry to l- listeners who've been offended. Um, but if you are listening, you probably will agree um, that there is a lot of it out there, and um, just really make sure that it is genuine. Um, and it's actually going to do what it what it says on the tin. But I do think there is a lot of scope to link the assessment that hopefully we'll be making, and finding those tangible solutions to fund transition to fund transition. Have you
1: Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, i uh, no, I was perhaps, just going to yeah. say, have you seen any sort of uh, issuances recently that have led you to have that feeling of of concerns around greenwash?
0: I'm just, just going to put in that it's the 23rd of September at the time of recording, the day after or two days after the um, issuance of the first green guilt uh, or, or certainly the first results. Not that I'm going to put words in your mouth there, Victoria.
3: No, listen, I mean, there's a heavily subscribed uh, issuance, oversubscribed issuance. Um, I think it's uh, it's really interesting. I know that uh, there's some views on, on this podcast uh, or, or on this panel around um, those guilts. Um, I think what it just shows you, there's a, there's a, there's a clamor for this sort of instrument. Um, and I think... Um, yeah, let, let's see what happens with sub, sub, uh, subsequent issuances and whether asset owners think that they're, you know, good and are, again, also doing what they what they say on the tin. Um, I can see some smirking, though. Listeners, you can't see this, but we can all see each other. So um, I'll let the rest three of you open up your opinions, if you so wish, and, and no swearing.
0: No swearing. No, I could easily swear on this because, uh, you know, my my view is – that I'm a big fan of anything with the word linked in it i think sustainability linked and transition linked are a very very positive way of driving the change that we want to see in the world you know there's an element of carrot and stick uh, in that and i think it's just the right mix i got friends that work in investment banks that i know listen to this this is the sort of um instrument that we want to see. If you're a corporate and listen to this, this is the sort of instrument that we as investors want you to deliver. I think green bonds, I think anyone um that looks at a guilt versus a green guilt and goes, oh, let's pay loads more for the green guilt for the literally the same risk profile um is out of their goddamn minds. Uh I think there's one thing saying we want to support green projects. I think yes, but the the Green Guilt, what I want to see from the UK government is uh investments along the lines of um their NDCs. I want to see Paris aligned NDCs, investments aligned with that, and therefore every guilt should be a green guilt because we shouldn't be funding uh things through our government that are, you know, way off the uh the one point five or two degree scenarios. Um, so I, th- I think it's, um, I think it's a bit disingenuous to be absolutely honest. Um, there's no linking, there's no penalties, um, and guilt money is fungible. So, you know, if you say, well, we've got the green guilt and we'll have a normal guilt and we'll just, it'll just give us more of our normal guilt money to spend on whatever projects don't qualify for green. I think there's, there's an awful lot of nonsense. And as investors, we need to be able to cut through that and say, we are not taking that hit because there are pro- mm. project products and projects out there where we don't have to take a hit on our investment. And this is literally when we talk about, oh, you know, you can have green and you don't have to take a lower investment return. This is a lower return product for the same thing. Uh, so yeah, stupid. Anyway, anyone else?
1: Interesting, David. <laughs> I, I, I just think that we through tools like ASCOR will reshape the debate of what we think is credible um, and what we will need to be able to play the, the role of financing that we can. And I think that that um, you'll see that. And then there are efforts underway with the different sort of collaborations working in the space, that sort of are evolving definitions, but I, I think ultimately it's about transition and driving that and uh,
0: yeah.
1: 100%. Um,
3: yeah, I, I think I can probably say that we weren't prepared to pay over the guilt's fair value. Um, so we watched it, we were hopeful. We watched it, there was a finger hovering over a mouse somewhere amongst my colleagues, but we just looked at the numbers and it's um, we were very excited by it, but it just we just
2: couldn't do it this time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nazmir, any last comments on that? Because I'm going to have to ring the gong soon.
2: So I I don't have last comments on green bonds, but maybe last comments on our overall discussion is that I think if we're going to think about um, mobilizing capital to help transition emerging markets, we need to focus on more than just private markets. We need Mm -hmm. to focus on the public markets with the sort of instruments we're now all talking about. We need to make sure that the big asset owners in the world can invest in these transitions, which means the measures that are used Um, to assess um, these portfolios and their commitment to decarbonization need to move beyond carbon intensity and as quickly as possible need to move beyond beyond carbon intensity in in my opinion um, because that's how you start to get away from divestment and exclusion into real world carbon reduction rather than portfolio carbon reduction. Um, So that's my hobby horse at the moment, David,
0: and I've now um, ridden it, so I need to end. Yeah, it's similar to my hobby horse. Uh, Victoria, any, any closing comments from your good self?
3: Um, no, kind of. Nazimir really just sort of hit, hit the nail on the head. I would just urge um, listeners to question themselves if they have set net zero goals, if they are thinking seriously about climate change, you know are you trying to stay the easy route or are you actually trying to do what you say that you're doing, which is which is getting to net zero? Um, that's what we're trying to do. We've set a very ambitious target. Um, it's quite well known in, in, in the market. Um, and this is the sort of thing that we're getting involved with because to Adam's point, we will have to work collaboratively with each other to come up with solutions, be them instruments or be them with new ways of looking at these topics. Um, so, you know, um, respond to the podcast uh, send in questions um, have conversations with your um, CIOs your trustees um, with your friends because um, yeah there's gonna be a lot of work in the space and it's very exciting
0: great and I will bring things to an end there so uh, we, we are now at a record length of uh, Talking Responsibly podcast but uh, it was absolutely worth the extra length to get the uh, opinions of uh, of Victoria and Nazmira on the show. Um, Nazmira, where can our listeners find you? Are are you on Twitter? Are you on LinkedIn? Can people follow you anywhere?
2: I'm on LinkedIn. I am not a social media poster, unfortunately, but I'm on LinkedIn um, and I'm reasonably responsive. But I'm also, my email address is nazmira, N-A-Z-M-E-E-R-A dot Mula moolas O L one 4 letterscom Excellent. Very happy to well, if, if, have people
0: email me. Yep, great. And we'll, we'll link, uh, I'll get some uh, resources from you and link them in the show notes. Same question, Victoria, where can we find you and potentially details on ASCOR as well?
3: LinkedIn, uh, I'm there. Uh, go on my profile, there'll be all the information about ASCOR there. Alternatively, you can go to the BT Pension Scheme website, The PRI's uh, website too, Um, just type in like PRI, Sovereign Debt, core. that'll pop up. Um, Yeah, just keep your eyes peeled in in investment publications. We're going to be trying to talk about it as much as possible.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you uh, both again for uh, your time today. Thank you, Adam. Uh, I will uh, see you soon, no doubt. And uh, thank you uh, again to our listeners. Uh, We appreciate you listening so far. Please um, try and promote this uh, podcast if you enjoyed it. Share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I don't care where. Just get it shared. Uh, We're trying to get our message out to as many people as possible. Uh, Subscribing helps as well. And if you want to drop us a review, that would be great. Um, And that's it from today. So thank you very much to all of you on and we will see you next time goodbye